Good morning. Welcome to the Weekly Roundtable. Uh, yeah, good morning. And uh, welcome to the Weekly Roundtable. C-SPAN here. And a um, couple of, we don't do featurettes here, but if we did, these are our three. First one is our brother Cash, who's from Fort Mill, uh, Nashville guy, uh, just a high-impact man. And I know uh, if you're following F3 on social, social media, uh, Cash is coming to the end. He's, uh, he's fought a good fight against cancer. This weekend, if you can, uh, take a picture with the guys. Everybody wear your black T-shirts. And in the social media, just tag at uh, F3TheFort and hashtag Cash. He is, he's going to be watching for those pictures. And like I said, he's, um, he is nearing the end. Definitely a high-impact man. And um, you know, our prayers are for with him and his family. And, um, you know, um, he's... He's a believer, so he's, he's going on to something better. So, Next featurette is um, F3 Tenure. Go ahead and sign up. Sounds like Pickle Jumper's uh, gonna, coupon code is going to last a little bit longer. Um, the agenda is starting to come together. Uh, that will start coming out on social media over the next few weeks. Um, just all I can say is it's going to be a blast. Uh, it's going to be one of those ones where I'm going to call FOMO now. If you don't go, you're going to have regret you didn't go. So. Uh, it's going to be a great event. And my last thing is, guys in Kansas City are probably already tapering. We got three grow rucks this year. Everything's still a go. Um, so Kansas City's coming up, followed up by Texas and San Antonio. The group down there is uh, rallying. They're putting the great numbers together. And then the 10, 10, 20, which is uh, the big event. Uh, they think it's going to be the most difficult grow ruck ever. Is going to be in Louisville, and they're rallying the troops there. Uh, good numbers are already signed up. So if you haven't signed up for a grow ruck, um, you know, if you're doing F3 a couple days a week, you're probably in good enough shape to get after it. Get yourself a ruck, get 30 pounds to put in it, and uh, get after it and start training. So, all right, that was all my announcements for this week, and now I'm going to transition into this week's call. And um, I'm going to go ahead and say this is another difficult topic. And so uh, we're going to start with the easy stuff first. And let's start with uh, Oscar, who EH'd you. How long have you been doing F3? Hey, uh, good to talk to you this morning, C-SPAN. Uh, yeah, I'm Oscar uh, here. Uh, I'm from Charlotte. I've uh, been uh, F3 in, I think, about eight years now, seven or eight years. Um, and I do it around the metro area here in Charlotte, so different places. I started at AG, the granddaddy of them all. And uh, now I mainly go over uh, Fortress and uh, the Charge over sort of on the metro, but the south side of metro. Um, I've been to a lot of them around that area. Yeah. And, and who gets credit for EH and you? Oh, uh, well, um, so there were, there was a guy named Cadillac, and he and another guy, we were, uh, we were going to watch a Panthers game at a, at a bar, a, a restaurant, and these two guys walked in, and it looked like they had stolen the faces of my two old friends, but they had, had, had completely different bodies. They had, like, returned to their – this is about eight or nine years ago. They had returned to their college bodies, and I was like, well, what, the, what, if you, what the heck happened to you guys? You, you look like you've each lost, like, 50 pounds, and so they told me about F3 and – my brother and I were there. Uh, he goes by Rubbish. Um, my, name, my last name's uh, 
Can I say my last name on here? Trash. We all have trash, trash. We all have garbage nicknames. So my brother's rubbish. My other brother's the grouch. One of my nephews is Hyzinga, and the guy that, that made his fortune on uh, waste disposal. any rate, um, so we're at this. Uh, so we, I, I said, well, what? tell me about this F3. So they tell me about it. It was sounded awesome. I'm like, oh, we're going to definitely do this. And then they... They said, oh, yeah, so when do y'all meet? And they said, oh, it's 530 in the morning. And I said, whoa, 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 well, it sounds really good for you guys. We're not, I, 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 I don't think I'm doing that. And uh, my brother convinced me to go. And so we went to AG on a Saturday. Um, and the rest is history. Been doing it ever since. Um, you know, my, my brother Rubbish does it a lot with me. My other brother, the Grouch, went about three times. And I think uh, F3 was too intense for him, but. <laughs> um, yeah, been doing it ever since. Uh, it's it's awesome. awesome. I, I played sports in college, and and I, honestly, it was the first time I felt like I was back working out with a team. Um, and it's it was a it was a great experience. I'll never forget that first time. Um, yeah, and so, I, yeah, and I'm gonna I, I want to share because you said something really important right there. If you're a listener and you're reaching guys, especially guys who used to play sports with you. Um, I totally agree. So. In the Marines, I always had this kind of team mentality, um, and I played a lot of sports growing up. Um, absolutely. The only the only thing that's even been close for me is F3. So you can say, well, you play church league softball, and that's kind of like the team mentality. It's not because there's no practice, um, and that's really where you form these really deep bonds and friendships. Yeah. To me, that's, that's where F3 is the closest is that practice mentality um, where everybody's getting together getting better together through all the sweat. And so that's a really good way to eat somebody. So um, great story. Awesome. I, I love all your nicknames uh, that your whole family has trash nicknames. That's great. <laughs> so I love, a, I love a good theme in the family's nicknames. So. <laughs> yeah. My son somehow so, got Black Friday because he came the day after Thanksgiving was the first day he came. But the rest of us are all trash derivatives. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, and I guess I'm going to do um, – <clears throat> we could do a long resume review on you, and I'm going to ask for a short resume because um, you're a judge. You've had a, a good career. And as the podcasters are listening to this, I think we've got to just at least put the reference point of a little bit of what your experience is. So, uh, you know, um, I think right now you're a superior court judge. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not much of a legal guy, so I don't want to. I'm not going to slaughter your resume, so I'm going to let you just give a. Why don't you sure. give the podcast? There's a snippet. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I grew up. I'm one of the few people that's a native Charlottean. I grew up in Charlotte. Born here. Grew up here. Um, went to West Charlotte High School. So shout out to the Lions. Um, and uh, then went up to uh, to college in Virginia at Washington Lee. Law school uh, back at Carolina. I was in Fayetteville for a year or two. God help you if you're from Fayetteville. I'm just I'm just teasing. Uh, my wife was not a not a fan. Um, so we moved back to Charlotte and uh, practiced law for a while, both in uh, at a place called the Children's Law Center where I represented kids, and then uh, went into private practice for a while. Then I became a judge in '99, uh, um, and have been a judge ever since. I started out in district court where I did mostly family court. So I'd handle divorces, custody, equitable distribution, those kinds of things, and, and then mainly juvenile court. So 
kids that are abused and neglected and then um, kids that get in trouble, uh, mostly, among other things. And, and then the last two years, I've been a superior court judge, about almost two years now, a year and about nine months, I've been on, in superior court, uh, which means that I handle now felony or more serious criminal cases and uh, large civil matters. So that's what, at least that's what I did before COVID. Now with COVID, um, we're kind of shut down um, except for uh, uh, necessary hearings. So we don't do jury trials, for example, right now. But that's kind of my, my story. I got uh, two kids, a uh, wonderful wife. Um, we're here in Charlotte. And like I said, I posted that a lot of metro areas. Yeah. Now, I, I am going to say, we're going to probably, I, you have a story that I think is just a really good kind of, um, I think it's a really good way to start the di- discussion. And so we're going we're gonna to be talking ab- about a difficult subject today because as you listen to this, you're going to realize that maybe you still have some bias. And I think uh, Potpaxer, he's going to start with a story. And when, as we start, start listening, um, start listening uh, you know, if you're at a point where you can't listen for clarity or listen for detail, um, put a pause on this and then come back to it because as you hear this story, you're going to understand um, there's a lot more going on than we realize. So why don't we start with, uh, you know, I, I guess you were, as a, you were working as a judge and then why don't you take it from there? Sure. So I was in uh, district court. I was in juvenile court and this is about mm, eight or nine years ago. And uh, I, um, had a, a what is, what's called a first appearance. And so in a first appearance, for those of you that don't know, um, is when someone's charged with a serious offense, um, so a felony offense, and a robbery or a rape or a murder, those kinds of things. You uh, call the person into court, um, deal with appointed counsel, make sure that they've got counsel appointed, you let them know what their charges are, what they're facing, um, and then you make a determination. Uh, now, this was in juvenile court, so you make a determination whether they're going to stay in detention, which is jail for kids uh, is the best way to put it, um, uh, pending their trial or whether they're going to be released, and if they're going to be released, what conditions will they have. So that's what I'm doing um, along with a number of other things. So I have two first appearances that day, and it turns out it was these two co-defendants, uh, meaning that these two Juveniles, these two kids, uh, committed allegedly committed a crime together, and they were charged with an armed robbery. And essentially what I found out is the first kid I call the case into court, uh, he's in detention as, with an armed robbery. That's what I would expect that they typically, if you're charged with an armed robbery, you're in detention already. So he comes in with the deputy out of the back from the holding cell. I call that door number two. He comes in there. Well, and then in door number one, which leads to my the lobby of the uh, court or the, the hallway um, outside the courtroom, uh, about 100 people came in, mom, dad, grandmas, grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles, the pastor from this kid's church came in, all of which was unusual in juvenile court. Unfortunately, a lot of the kids that find their way to my system don't have a lot of family support. They don't have outside support, and so usually I'll get a mom, maybe a dad once in a while, uh, maybe an aunt or an uncle, but but that's about it. And so this was surprising when, uh, you know, 50 people came into my courtroom. 
And uh, so I go through the first appearance. I've got a team of people that work with me, uh, men, women, old, young, black, white, but they're, they're the same people. So I've got co- uh, case managers. I've got what are called court counselors, which are like probation officers, district attorney, defense attorney, and they're all uh, in, the, in the courtroom and uh, often social workers, et cetera, and they work with me every day. So we're in one courtroom. At any rate, uh, they're all there. So I hear about this kid, and what I hear from the family and everybody is, look, I, I don't know what happened. This kid completely, this is not who he is. He's never been in trouble. All the red flags that I'm looking for, you know, gang activity, drug activity, no family support, et cetera, I, I don't hear. He's never been in trouble in school. He's an average student. He's um, he's just not, this is just totally unusual. So after hearing from everybody, I said, well, look, based on what you're saying, it sounds like he's a good uh, candidate for what we call alternatives to detention, which means you may get an electronic monitor or more intense supervision, but you're released pending your trial. You don't spend your, your time before trial waiting in, in a holding cell and in, in detention. Instead, you're home with your family with a bunch of rules that you have to follow in close supervision. I said, but I've got to check everything out. This is a serious offense, and so I'm not releasing him today. I go through the case manager, the DA, everybody, and they're all in agreement. The defense attorney says, well, can we just come in later this week instead of what we normally do, which would be next week, because this kid needs to get back to school. I say, sure, we'll do that. So we come back. We're going to come back on Thursday. This is a Monday, and now we're going to come back on Thursday. That's the end of the hearing. Um, don't think a lot about it uh, other than – i got to call my next case because i got a bunch of other stuff besides these first appearances. Call the second case in. As they're all leaving, another 50 people come in court, and they're all um, milling around in court, settling down. And the deputy, my deputy, is sitting in the back, kind of like Barney Fife, just sitting in this chair looking around. And I'm like, hey, we need to, can we get the other co-defendant out here? Because I'm you know, waiting for him to come out of detention so I can move forward with his first appearance, and he says, Judge, there's nobody else back there. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, there's, we only had the one kid in detention this, uh, this afternoon. And I said, well, where's the other kid? And about that time, the other co-defendant comes forward. I had thought he was maybe a brother uh, of the kid or something. And he comes forward. He sits down with his lawyer at the table. I said, okay, well, let's begin. So we go through the first appearance hearing again. And then I ask around the room, well, what do you all recommend happens with him? And the first, the court counselor, probation officer type person, and the case manager both say, well, we'd like him to stay at home on house arrest. We'd like him to go to school every day, stay out of trouble, sort of a typical list of, of pretrial conditions when, some, when someone's charged with a, a, a serious offense. And I said, okay, I hear from them. Asked the DA, the district attorney, uh, what they think. They said, we're in agreement with that. Okay, I go to the public defender, the defense attorney from the Children's Law Center, and they said, we're also in agreement with that. And uh, so then I start asking questions. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Did the other guy have the gun? No, 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 they both had guns. Well, did the other guy, the first co-defendant that I had, did, did that other co-defendant, is, did he um, – did he plan the whole thing? And he said, no. And I found out that these two kids had watched the movie Ocean's Eleven. And they come up with this idea that they don't have a casino to heist, but there's a McDonald's in the neighborhood. And so they go to rob the McDonald's. They're terrible criminals and get caught in the parking lot with their, with 
you know, $7 or whatever they got out of the store. Um, and so I find out neither one of the kids, they, they're best friends. They lived across the street from each other. They were spending the night at one of the kids' houses. They've been friends since they were seven. Their families are friends. They go to the same high school, et cetera, et cetera. There's really no difference. And I keep asking more and more and more. And finally, I said, well, then, why is the first kid in detention and this kid is home with his family? What's the difference? And you could see the light bulb go off with all of my court personnel. And I'm sorry, it's a long story, uh, C-SPAN, but, um, but it kind of sets the stage for, for my journey. And at any rate, um, they all kind of look at me and they're like, oh, my gosh, you're right. We're treating this like they hadn't even realized it before. And they realized suddenly we're treating these kids totally differently. Can't believe it. And I'm like, yeah, so what's the difference? And so it, when I talk about this subject and, and my journey, um, I kind of stop here and I ask the audience, do you know what the difference was? What is the difference? And honestly, um, I've probably told a thousand people this story through, through presentations, et cetera. And one person who was from Europe did, couldn't figure out what the difference between the two was. Every American knew exactly what the difference was and they knew which kid was white, and which kid was black, um, and that the white kid was home with his family and the black kid was in detention. And so at that point, that kind of tells you what, what you need to know about. And so George Floyd and all that stuff um, was not shocking to me. It was disappointing. It was tragic, et cetera. But I, by that, the time that happened, I, I had kind of come to grips with there are some differences in the way people are treated across all systems, not just the criminal justice system, but across all systems. So let me stop there and, um, and just say, in, in, saying, in stopping there, saying that that sort of led me on a journey to figure out what's going on here because I first did what Americans at that point all are taught to do when we deal with the subject of race or racism or bias, I immediately went to where's the racist in the room? Who's the person? Is it the police officer? Was it the judge that ordered his detention to begin with? Was it the probation officer? Is it the district attorney? Who is it that is trying to treat uh, in this individual case, this black kid differently than this white kid? How dare they do that? So I'm looking for Archie Bunker, right? For those of you that are old packs, you know who I'm talking about, young guys. Um, he was the, the quintessential bigot um, Archie Bunker was. So I'm looking for who, where is Archie Bunker? Where is the bigot so I can identify him, uh, scold him, and then move on. Um, and as I looked around looking for Archie Bunker, I looked at my court team, and they were white, black, men, women, old, young, and I worked with them every single day um, and had for years. And I realized, wait a minute, I work with all these guys. I know that they are doing their darndest to treat everybody fairly and each doing their own different respective jobs, but they're not, try they're not about treating people differently. So what is going on? And then after that, I had the horrible realization, oh my gosh, how many times have I done this? Because not only have they treated these two kids so differently, 
where one kid was going to stay in detention. If he got out, he was going to be wearing an electronic monitor when he went back to school, whereas the other kid would not have a monitor and would be home in his own bed the whole time. But they didn't even realize that they had treated him so differently, and it hit them all like a ton of bricks. And I thought, how many times have, when it's not that obvious, when it's not cases back-to-back where it's kids that are that clearly in identical situations, have I done the exact same thing? Oh, my gosh. And so that led me on a journey to figure out what is going on because something's going on beyond Archie Bunker. Yeah, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there. So I think as – as the podcasters listen to the story that you just told, I think we all have. When I when I first heard this story, what it what it immediately made me do is go and start recognizing all of the processes, all the things I'm involved with, where there's bias built in. And I, um, I as soon as I heard your story, I was like, oh man, because I've you don't even realize it's going on until you start like really kind of like scalping it back and feeling that, you know, breaking that onion open and actually going layer by layer. Um, this bias that's just kind of built in. So I'll hand it back to you because I can tell this is where for the pod factors, what he starts talking about now is really everything we've done up to this point is so he can explain his D2X. And so um, I'll hand it back to you. All right. Um, so I will tell you this. When I first learned about this concept of heuristics or implicit bias, it wasn't a, it was, this is about the same time, uh, within a year of, of that story, I learned about it at a, at a meeting where some judges were from across the country had been called together and I'll never forget it. We were in Denver. And so these are judges from across the country looking at why in our abuse and neglect dependency system, did kids of color, especially African-American kids, fare so much poorly, more uh, poorly than white kids? So this is not the delinquency system. This is when kids are, are mistreated by their parents. And what I mean by that is kids of color, especially, again, African-American children, it, if they're free for adoption, for example, it takes much longer to find an adoptive family. And the older they are, the longer it takes um, to find a family. Uh, they are removed from their families for similar um, behaviors at much higher rates. So anyway, we're looking at this issue and this problem and trying to figure out as judges, uh, juvenile judges across the country, what we can do about it. And I, we're talking about it the way lawyers talk about things. And, uh, you know, well, the law was set up this way, and historically it's been that way, and these are the precedent, these are the decisions, and maybe that's how we got to this place. And a psychologist was in the room, and he finally very reticently, you can imagine in a room full of uh, judges, I'm a judge, so I can say it, we're rather opinionated people and rather um, uh, domineering. Is that We have dominant personalities, I guess I would say. Um, so he reticently raises his hand and says, look, there's a concept in psychology that you all might be interested in. And he tells us about what are called heuristics, which are mental shortcuts and how that could lead to what some a concept called implicit bias. Now that's 10 years ago, eight years ago, whenever it was nowadays, most people or many people have heard about it. And, and like so many other things in our 
culture, it's become a partisan issue. So if you're on one of our teams, the red team or the blue team, you know, one of our teams, you're, you're to believe and are, are and that that's a bunch of hooey. If you're on the other team, you're to believe, yes, that's, that's true, and not only that, but, but many more things. And, and that's unfortunate because when I first heard it, that those tribal definitions and, and values had not been placed on this concept. It was simply a psychological concept, and it explained so much. And the concept is this. Human beings can't process all uh, of the stimuli that come into their brain, um, you, you if 2,000 bits of information come into you every every second, and you can consciously process about 30, then a lot your brain has to do a lot of triage and a lot of shortcuts to figure out, and spends a lot of time figuring out. Okay, when do we involve the the prefrontal cortex? You know, I, I, I view that like the boardroom. Um, and when do we get them involved, and when do we just make a decision that we can make quickly and, and what I would call just uh, sort of by typical processes, and that would be subconscious thinking. A lot of what we do is subconscious processing simply because, or shortcuts, simply because the brain can't process all the information. So there are tons of shortcuts that your brain uses. Um, for example, and there's a great one if you ever want to try this. Um, um, it's called um, anchoring. And anchoring is this. Um, C-SPAN, if I ask you, and let's say you're wherever you post your packs there, um, the, if I said to you the Mississippi River is not 500 miles long, how long is it? Now, unless you have some weird Jeopardy ge geography buff, most people don't know how long the Mississippi River is. And if I gave you all pieces of paper and you wrote it all down then, and then looked at your number, the average or median of your number, and then I had another PAX across town, and I asked them, same question, only I phrased it this way, the Mississippi River is not 2,000 miles long. How long is it? And they all wrote their guesses down. Your, your guesses would be all over the place. However, your guesses at your PAX C-SPAN where I said the Mrs. I used the word 500 or the number 500, your median, your average would be closer to 500. The guys across town where I said the Mississippi River is not 2,000 miles long, so I used the number 2,000, their number would come closer to 2,000. Again, they'd be all over the place. Everybody wouldn't say 2,000, but you would use that as an anchor. And there have been multiple studies that show that people across um, um, the world do that in many different situations. In other words, when you don't know the answer to something, your brain says, look, I don't have a lot of time to do a lot of conscious processing. This is not that important a decision anyway. So I'm just going to use the number that the guy, the last number that I've heard as an anchor, as sort of a jumping off place. So that's anchoring. That's one heuristic. Another heuristic which kind of comes into play in my story and my, my journey in this concept of implicit bias is categorizing. So human beings remember information by putting, putting every object, every people, place, or thing, every object, every person you meet, every place you go into a category. 
and you fit that into a category to sort of to process it, to frame it, to figure out, is this thing dangerous? Is this thing helpful? How do I use this thing? Is this person a possible friend, a possible mate, a possible enemy? So you can get a frame of reference and then move on, and you try, your brain is trying to do that as simply as possible. And so you remember things in a category. You, you don't have a pigeonhole for every person that you've ever met. You put them in a different pigeonhole. Instead, you might have a, a pigeonhole for these are the guys that I post with um, on Wednesday mornings, and everybody kind of goes into that category. Um, you do that with things. And usually, you know, you, you ascribe characteristics to those categories so that when something goes in the category, you know what it is. And if you encounter it again later, what to do with it. So, for example, objects, a pen. I take a pen. Um, I hand it to you. You have a category for things that you write with. So, therefore, without thinking about it, you know how to use the pen. You know where the button is to push. You know where the cap is. You know which end, how you write with it. All of those things that you do with a pen, you don't think about. You just I hand it to you. You pull it up from the categories. Again, subconsciously, this is automatic processing, and you're able to use the pen. Sometimes, however, so, and usually you're right, but sometimes, however, you're wrong. And... In my um, uh, situation with the pen, I have on my iPad a thing that looks like a pen, but it's a stylus. You know, and a stylus you use, you're able to use and write and mark things with on an electronic device, but it won't write on paper. I've had more people over the years ask me, hey, can I use that? And they grab my stylus off my iPad and then try to use it like a pen, but they're wrong even though it looks like the things, and they put it in, this in, this, in the category of things you write with, and it, they ascribe the same characteristics, it has different characteristics. Well, we do the same thing with people. Um, and let me stop there and see if you've got any questions or if I'm going way too far afield here, C-SPAN. No, and, I, and you're hitting it because I think what we're going to do is um, – I, you know, where, where we're transitioning, so the pod packs are kind of keeping up, what he's kind of laying out now is how our brain is doing it, and he's going to give us another example here. My, my favorite is the basketball players. Because <laughs> okay, to I'll me, tell you. this is, yeah, because to me, this is really where, um, you know, we're a group of white guys, um, you know, trying to make a difference in our community. As soon as you hear the – I'll let you tell the basketball story because, to me, sure. this is really where, as we start meeting guys and, um, and to try and expand our group, this is, this is a very key component he's going to lay out for us right now because, um, you know, the question – like the jumping off point or the anchoring with the question of, you know, 500 miles or 2,000 miles, that's one thing. We do a little bit of that with our brain, but what he's going to describe now, all of us do because – Sure, and it, and and it, you can you can send me you can fight me in the DMs on this. I just I'm going to tell you this is what we all do, and so I'm going to hand it back to you. Let's do the uh, let's sure. do that story about the uh, the basketball t uh, players. Sure. So, yeah. So so we also categorize people, right? And again, a lot. And and, and what happens is you get your definite your cat your categories. You know, you have you, you, they're sort of arbitrary. Um, but the characteristics that you subscribe to those categories are what your own personal experience is, what 
messages you've gotten from your culture, from your society. Um, so, you know, whatever the myths are from your society, whatever the, the stories that are told in your society, that's kind of where you, you get a lot of these categories. So, I am six foot six. And when, if any of you guys could see me live or, or met me or we were at a, at a, at a um, we were posting uh, one day um, after the post or we went out for coffee afterwards or something. Um, or we were in a, in a prayer group or um, any of the groups that in many groups F3 does, I guarantee you would ask me at some point, probably very quickly, where I, did I play basketball? And if so, where I play? Everybody, I can promise you that because it's happened to me 8 million times in my life. And I have played basketball. And the, and the reality is in our society, then tall people, there's an assumption that you make oh, well, he's tall, he must have played basketball. And your brain is trying to get a very quick, down-and-dirty frame of reference for me. So, I, so what's, what, in our society, what do tall people do? They can reach things off high shelves. Uh, maybe they're not very good at doing burpees, uh, but they're really good, uh, and, or, or uh, pull-ups of any kind, but they're really good at other things, right? So you've got these messages or these characteristics and so when people ask me, and, and again, it's your brain is sizing me up, trying to put me in a category, a frame of reference, so it can move on. Am I a friend? Am I a foe? Am I a danger? Um, you know, without having to consciously process me. So typically with me, people ask me, did you play basketball? I did play basketball. Some people ask me the second question and the third question, which are what position did you play? I was a 3-4 and which is small forward, power forward. And then the third question is, where did you play? And I played up at Washington Elite. So those are sort of the answers that I give. People ask me those three questions. If I go to a, a bar or, or to, the, to the cafeteria or wherever, um, you'll let me go. And I can go drink my coffee. I can go drink my beer. Uh, and that's it. You've made your your got your frame of reference for me and I can move on and neither one of us has to spend a lot of time. Well, I had a buddy in college who didn't play basketball, but he was six foot five. And every time we'd go together somewhere, they would ask me the three questions. I'd answer the three questions and move on with my life. He didn't play basketball. Instead, he was a high jumper in track. And so he would say, I don't play basketball. And you could see the people's face kind of screw up. Wait a minute, you don't fit my categories? Oh, gosh, I've got to consciously process you. So he would end up in a 30-minute conversation while they consciously processed or set up a frame of reference for him that they didn't have. Um, and, and it's just, it's happened. I watched it happen over and over and over again. Well, we do that with all people, whether you're tall, short, um, thin, fat, um, stout, uh, you know, thin, uh, skinny, old, young, man, woman. And we do that also with race and ethnicity. And so it causes us without even thinking about it. You, you don't think about asking me about if I play basketball. It's just something you do um, because your brain pulls, okay, he's a tall guy. There's the category. Pulls up the characteristics, like let me make sure he fits these characteristics. When I do, you've got me sized up, you move on um, because you just do it without thinking. Um, and so when we do it without thinking with white people, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, et cetera, 
we make certain judgments or, or, or um, characteristics, assume characteristics about the, those people based on that group. And we all do it, and we do it across systems, and I could tell you all kind of research about what the impact of that is. Um, but one of the impacts is what's going on with the police and um, uh, African Americans um, that has been going on for a long time. We just didn't know about it before they had or didn't hear about it much before they had videos. Uh, people were shooting it on videos. So this is nothing new, but it's it's now something we're aware of. And so, again, for me, understanding that that's quite a jump from being tall, you know, basketball player to uh, what ha- what's, ha- what's going on right now with a lot of the protests across the country. But, um, but that's, it's the same concept because police officers, and they've done studies, not just with police officers, but we ascribe, especially to African-American males, uh, some of the characteristics or criminality, things related to criminality and dangerousness, um, and so our guards are up. And so when those things happen, I watch our country. I watch uh, people that I know, people that I love, people that I you know, don't know as well on TV um, talk about those instances. And, and invariably, they do what I did back on that day when I had those two kids in my courtroom. They say, let's find that and punish that racist cop that one racist cop that did that. And and that goes on in our country. I'm not saying that it doesn't. And I'm not saying you shouldn't punish people that are outright treating people differently. But the larger problem is that um, any of us in that situation um, are likely to treat people differently in in a situation police officers in. Frankly, we probably do it in our in our, in our day to day lives. Whether we're hiring people, uh, whether we are um, dealing with uh, negotiations with people, whether we're figuring out who our mentors are, or whether we're trying to go out and expand our uh, group of um, F three uh, participants, uh, our pack, expand our packs. Um, we do it every day, and we do it without thinking about it. Um, and we do it whether we're willing to admit it or, or we're, we're not willing to admit it. It's just something that human beings do. Yeah, and I um, I hope the pod packs um, can listen to this and and understand. You know, maybe you're not maybe you're not doing it on purpose. It's just the way your brain's processing. And so, I don't know if you can share some action steps. We, we're a bunch sure. of guys trying to make the right decisions. Let Let's start talking action items or what yeah. what we can do to make F3 better but also make our communities better because this sure. is basically you've got to do the unnatural thing um, to not have this bias. So why don't you take from there and give us some tips? Yeah, so the, the, the first thing I would say is is awareness, right? So to be once I became aware that I and everybody else was um, – um, processing information in this way, which led me to good things. It, it allows you to function, by the way. These heuristics, if without them, we wouldn't be able to function. So 
um, because, you again, your brain can't process all of the information, so it allows you to function. And so once I understood that and once people understand that, then you can go about saying, oh, okay, well, there, I've got an explanation for why if somebody cuts me off on the highway, for example, you know, in, in their car. Depend, I, I don't know if everybody else does this, but I'll tell you what I do. I drive, you know, if I, somebody cuts me off and then I pass them later um, in traffic um, and I look over at their car, depending on what they look like, I might make different judgments. And they, they just jump into my head, even though I've gone through a lot of training, even though I've gone through a lot of soul searching, these thoughts, like if it's an older person, boom, I immediately have some thoughts about why they cut me off or what they did. If it's a younger you know, guy in a big truck, I'm, I have different thoughts. If it's a, a, a woman driving a, a van, I have different thoughts. And they just come into my head. And so once I learned about implicit bias, which I think is really the first step and, and accepted that that's the way people think, and it doesn't make me a bad person or a good person, it just makes me a person, then I could go about, um, understanding and dealing with it. And it's, it's helped me personally understand some of those thoughts that I have and some of the things that I end up doing um, very unintentionally. Uh, the second thing that I would say, and, and one of the ways you can do that is if you Google implicit association test or just the letters IAT, IAT, um, you can go online, you can take a, actually take a test. Of, um, I think it's Harvard uh, created this, this test called the Implicit Association Test where you can measure uh, bias that you might have, um, subconscious bias. And, and if you go on and you look at it, basically you're pushing computer buttons when you see different faces and different words paired together. Um, and and if you, you'll learn that you, and you can do it with race, ethnicity, age, gender, et cetera, and you can learn that you may have some unconscious bias, again, as a result of these, um, the way your, your brain functions. So that would be the first thing that I'd recommend. Um, after that, once you understand, the second thing that's really important is to, say, is to understand no matter how much training, so if I heard this one podcast from Oscar and C-SPAN one day, that ain't going to cure you. There's no vaccine or inoculation that you can get to cure that way of thinking because that's the way your brain is designed to think. So you, can't, you can go to years and years and years of training, which I have, and yet I still am, uh, especially when I'm in a time crunch, in a, in a pressure situation where I've got to get a lot of things done uh, very quickly, um, or in a very stressful situation, I am, am uh, at risk of reverting to that subconscious heuristic shortcut way of thinking, which again leads to me um, rubber stamping things or, or not consciously processing them, which makes it more likely that I'm going to exhibit bias of some kind. So I try to do things in my line of work to, to make sure that I'm realizing um, that uh, uh, I, I am prone to do this, even though I've gone through all this training, and in situations like if I'm doing a sentencing situation or court situations, I try to do 
more complicated cases or difficult cases early in the morning um, or at a time when uh, I used to try and just hammer through uh, all my cases, and now I try to make sure that I give myself enough time and I take regular breaks, et cetera, because um, when you're oppressed, you're more likely to resort to these shortcuts. So um, I have done a lot of things um, to force conscious processing. Um, one of the things that we do in, in where I work is we started using these checklists, and checklists are something that doctors use so that they don't make assumptions, for example. And so, you know, they have a whole checklist where they're like forceps and uh, I don't know what doctors do, but they have a whole list of it, and they check through all those lists. Astronauts, if you see an astronaut movie, they do the same thing, and they checklist everything, even things that are sort of seem really routine. And they do that because if you don't have a checklist and you don't check it off, you make assumptions about the information that you have. So checklists, in my line of work, that would be in a series of questions that we ask when defendants are in front of us or litigants are in front of us, that when you initially look at the questions, I look at the questions, I'm like, well, I already do this anyway. This is something that I already do. Um, but in, in point of fact, if I don't go through the checklist, I will invariably skip um, some of the questions because I want to get done more quickly. I make assumptions about the situation. Uh, I, for example, you have a, a case where a child is removed from their family and it's involved, involving substance abuse. A whole set of assumptions arise in my brain. And if I'm not looking at the checklist, I'm very likely going to skip some of the uh, questions that I need to ask in order to get all the information to make a determination whether that child should be returned home to their parents, sent to a relative, or placed in foster care. And so those checklists are very, very helpful um, uh, for me. Um, another thing that's really important is, um, is uh, in-group, out-group um, um, Connections. In other words, forcing yourself um, to associate with and hang around people that are different than you. And that's not easy. So it's, again, not surprising to me that F3, which started as sort of a upper middle class uh, white guys uh, thing, has stayed an upper middle class, for the most part, white guy thing. Because when you bring in new people, you tend to bring in new people that look like you, that you're comfortable with, that you don't have to do a lot of in-depth thinking and, and conscious processing um, about. And so you bring in people that grew up like you did, look like you did, do the same work that you do, et cetera, et cetera, um, live in your neighborhood. And so I think to get out of that, for example, if you're an S3 and you're trying to expand your base, then you have to get out of – you can't say to people – okay, everybody bring in a black guy or everybody bring in a, in, a, in a guy that doesn't live in your neighborhood. You can say that, but when people revert over time, they're going to go right back to what's comfortable, which is uh, bringing in the same people. And so there's been a lot of studies that if you associate with people that are different than you, it helps you break down some of those stereotypes that develop based on your categories that you create and the characteristics that you ascribe in your head without thinking or trying to, but the characteristics that you ascribe to different people. 
I'm going to stop there because I know I've gone on and on and on, and I apologize for that C-SPAN. But no, brother, you were, yeah, brother, you're nailing it this morning. I just, I, I know it was a complicated topic, and I, um, you know, this we're trying to make the packs better, and yeah. I, I don't know, I don't know another way but to use that story to start the, you know, to kind of do the. You know, to set the table. I didn't know another way to do it, so I, I just appreciate you sharing. I, um, yeah. you're right. We are we are on top of our time. Uh, I'll give you a minute or two. Any final thoughts? Anything you want to recap, or do we miss anything that you want to get out there? And also, if you want to share an email address or a Twitter handle or anything, if anybody wants to follow up with you. Um, yeah. So it's uh, you know what I, I do Twitter, but I don't know if I've got a. Uh, I don't know if I've got a. Uh, I know I've got a Twitter handle, but I don't know what the heck it is. Um, but I, I go on and check when, when my post, you know, with my my my, uh, my uh, eh, I figure out where you know where it is I'm going and that kind of stuff. But yeah, so I check other people's follow other. But you could reach me at um, l t r o s c h j r at aol dot com. I think I'm the last person in America to have an aol dot com that tells you that I'm my age. Um, but yeah, ltroshjr at aol.com. Uh, again, I post in uh, the Charlotte Metro. But yeah, shoot me an email if you've got any questions or want to talk further. Um, yeah, and I, I would say this: it's I don't look. I'm, I'm, it's sad to me that it's become this kind of topic has become yet another partisan issue where we're our beliefs on all this stuff are supposed to be framed by whether we're on the red team or the blue team, I think that's um, unfortunate about a lot of different things and prevents us from um, thinking through things together, you know, in, in a way that, that uh, we can be respectful of one another. And um, I, I think the blue team, red team, the characteristics you, you know, you, you ascribe to whichever other team that you're not on is a perfect example of the topic we're talking about. Uh, Cause if you get to know somebody um you kind of realize pretty quickly, hey, that's that's a pretty superficial explanation of that other person. Yeah, I disagree with them about some political issues, but other than that, we're both people, and there are a lot of other things that we get along about. Religion's the same way. Um, so yeah, I think it's uh, it's it is what it is. It's the way people think. It doesn't make you bad or good, but it helps explain, um, I think. Uh, why this is a recurring problem across all societies, and it plays out in different ways. But it's 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 the way human beings think and uh, label one another. Yeah, and and brother, I'm just gonna on behalf of the nation. I just appreciate you sharing because um, I think F3 is just like society. We're trying to get better, and uh, we're trying to make our communities better. But I think until we really start understanding the problem and, and how we, you know, and it's unconscious. This is the way our brains work. How we ended up in this situation we're in now, um, I, you know, I just appreciate you sharing and being, I, I can tell your passion. I, I know it's your D2X. I just appreciate the work you do. And, um, you know, I guess we know, we probably never get, we never get to clap for the judge and say, we're just thankful <laughs> that we have, you know, we're just thankful we have a judge that, that's, your D2X is trying to be balanced and fair, and yeah. we we appreciate that you do the checklist on every decision because, yeah. you know, that's probably the other thing that happened is we probably didn't have judges that acted like that, and that's how we got to this point with our judicial system. So, 
I'm just going to say triple claps to you, brother. Thank you so much for being a, a guest on the uh, on the podcast. Yeah, for the rest of the guys, I'll say I'll see you next week. Start working on your brain. Start working on that bias. All right. And uh, I'll talk Three to you next week. Three claps back at you, Seeks fan. All right. Got you, brother. All right, man.